You are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12s. This is Corbin Smith, host of the Locked On Seahawks podcast. With me today, my trusty colleague, Rob Rang. We're going to take a deeper dive into Sunday's win over the Pittsburgh Steelers. Now that we've had a chance to look at the All-22 film, what went right, and what's still concerning heading into the meat of Seattle's schedule. So we're going to open up our Tuesday show with some defensive observations, including the much-anticipated return of Ziggy Anza. In the second quarter, it's Throwback Tuesday. We've got a plethora of former Seahawks standouts who also excelled for the Saints in this week's upcoming segment. And we'll put a bow on this show looking more in-depth at Seattle's offense from Sunday. What clicked? Which players stood out most? But first, your lead story here on Locked on Seahawks. Rob, the NFL is trending more towards passing. It continues year by year. Teams are airing it out. We're seeing the infiltration of spread concepts throughout the league. And that's had a profound impact on how teams play defense on Sundays. Looking back at this game in Pittsburgh, the Seahawks pass defense overall, I felt played a lot better, but the pass rush is still a major concern. And in today's game, they've got to get that figured out. It's still far too sporadic for my liking. Oh, absolutely. As you said, I mean, the game is all about the passing attacks anymore. And so if you cannot get pressure on the quarterback, uh, then then you're going to struggle. It doesn't matter how good your secondary is. I mean, uh, I can't remember if it was uh, Josh Norman or or one of the other defensive backs throughout the league that said, hey, I can't cover for 10 seconds, fellas. And and that's that's essentially the point that it feels like like an eternity back there uh, that that Mason Rudolph, frankly, in this past game against the Seahawks had. So I think that as as you said, it's absolutely critical that the Seahawks get Ziggy Ansah back because Jadavion Clowney and the rest of Seattle's pass rush, they showed flashes Sunday against the Pittsburgh Steelers, but they certainly were not the consistent force that you might have expected considering all the buzz that Seattle's defense is getting in the 2-0 start. Yeah, Pete Carroll on, on Sunday after the game, he seemed like he was pretty happy after the game. This is before he had a chance to look at the film. He was pretty happy with the pressure they had, especially early on Ben Roethlisberger. And the first couple drives, they did. Brandon Jackson had a sack. Uh, Clowney knocked the pass away. He almost got to Roethlisberger. They had a couple other times they had pressure on him. And then after that point, it really tapered off. They weren't able to get pressure. And Carroll even acknowledged that yesterday. He said the pass rush wasn't very effective in that the numbers weren't there on hurries and the hits on the quarterback and again he pointed out early in the first half they were able to push the pocket well they got to Ben Roethlisberger they got him to throw the ball when they wanted him to only had 60 something yards passing at halftime obviously was also dealing with that elbow injury but uh, they did really well against a great quarterback there and then the numbers just weren't there from a pass rushing standpoint Rudolph had all day on a lot of those plays the one time they did have a chance to really get to him he slipped away and scrambled for a first down so it, it really disappeared and I think that goes back you mentioned Anza to me the expectations I've had a number of people send messages on social media you know what are some realistic expectations when this guy gets back in the lineup at this point they have to be high he has gotten the time to get stuff right he has gotten these extra couple weeks to make sure that he's 100% ready and that he can take on a bigger workload Carroll said he's in excellent physical condition now he needs to go prove that he was worth signing because they 
they need it. They need another guy that can really pin his ears back and get after the quarterback. And I think that's going to help all the other guys as well. We saw flashes these first two games, but to really excel in this league at getting after the quarterback and have a great defense, they're going to need more than what they've had these last two weeks. And I don't care if Drew Brees isn't playing this upcoming game. Bridgewater and Taysom Hill, you give those guys time to throw the football, they're going to find receivers. They are solid backup quarterbacks in the league. One of them has starting experience, Bridgewater. So you can't get after those guys. That's going to be a problem this football game, even without Drew Brees. They need Ziggy Anza to come in and immediately be an impact player. They, they do, and I, I fully expect him to do so. Uh, you know, Ziggy Ansah, I mean, his his career success speaks for itself, and that was playing Detroit defense uh, defensive line that frankly doesn't have nearly the talent that Seattle's has right now. Um, that said, he, he's 30 years old at this point. He's coming off the injuries, uh, shoulder injury, the groin. Um, he did not look quite as explosive in, in pregame drills, and I think that's one of the reasons why the Seahawks ultimately elected to, to hold him out this past week. And I think that it was with an eye toward towards uh, perhaps a, a successful um, debut um, in Seattle against an offense that at that point, obviously, the Seahawks were thinking that they would be having to prepare prepare for Drew Brees. But you get the nail on the head, Corbin. I mean, Teddy Bridgewater specifically. And Taysom Hill is a, is a fine talent. He's a heck of a versatile player. But Teddy Bridgewater is a classic quarterback for Sean Payton's offense. He's very intelligent. He gets the ball out quickly. When Seattle has beaten Teddy Bridgewater in the past, um, including when he was with the Minnesota Vikings, they were able to get pressure on him. If they are able to do so, then I think that Teddy Bridgewater can can absolutely carve up this defense, perhaps not to the level of a future Hall of Famer like Drew Brees, but certainly something to be concerned about. And again, I mentioned the fact that Seattle is getting so much love. I mean, if you didn't watch the game, if all you read was that, hey, the Seahawks knocked Ben Roethlisberger out and, and they're 2-0, you would think that Seattle got a lot of pressure on Pittsburgh's quarterback. So that wasn't the case Brandon Jackson was Seattle's only sack uh, so that is something to very much be concerned about Jackson actually was the only guy watching the film that I felt had a consistent you know consistently could make push he had a quarterback hit in the fourth quarter and he had a sack so he continues to be impressive during the early stages of the season but Clowney kind of disappeared in the second half for a second week in a row and a lot of it I still think is he's still trying to grasp the system but going into his third game now those expectations are going to keep going up they expect him to be a game record that's what they traded for and getting Ziggy Anza back to play opposite of him certainly should take some of the pressure and it's going to make it much more difficult for teams to put a second guy on Clowney because if you do that now you're one-on-one with Anza if he's healthy he's going to be able to be really disruptive as well so the the expectations are through the roof got to see how this group looks obviously his first game back there will be some rust there but he needs to come in and be able to contribute right away they have to have that in order to win games coming up they got a lot of high-powered offenses on the schedule the other thing to talk about here looking back at this game in Pittsburgh Rob Talking again about the the pass happiness in the NFL. Teams are throwing the ball around more and more each year. And with that, teams are running more nickel packages, more dime packages. Unless you're the Seattle Seahawks. They're kind of bucking <laughs> trends a little bit right now. Playing three linebackers in their base 4-3 defense. 90% of the snaps in the season opener had three linebackers on the field, which is unheard of for this day and age. And then week two reduced a little bit, but still 60% of the snaps. Michael Kendricks, Bobby Wagner, and K.J. Wright were out there together. That is still a very high usage rate. 
And that begs the question, you know, how much are they going to be playing that against this Saints squad, especially with backup quarterbacks in? They've still got plenty of weapons there. They've got a running back in Alvin Kamara that's an absolute monster catching the football out of the backfield, can line up out wide. Michael Thomas, those weapons, they got a number of guys that can run out of the slot as well. Got to wonder how much they're going to stick with that this week. But from what Pete Carroll has said, he's really excited and thinks they're just getting started, really figuring things out with these three players on the field together. Yeah, I'm really excited about it as well. I mean, I thought entering the season when Pete Carroll talked about that this is going to be one of their plans, that they might use a lot more just base, uh, you know, 4-3 concept with, with, with three linebackers instead of those nickel and dime defensive backs, as you mentioned. I thought, okay, this is some coach speak. We'll see what happens when you actually go against the spread. Let's see what happens when you go on the road in Pittsburgh. And that's exactly what they did, even before Roethlisberger was knocked out. And I think it kind of comes back to what we saw. Again, I mentioned this before with what we saw when Seattle destroyed the Denver Broncos to win their only Super Bowl championship is they just were the most physical team in the entire league. Everybody feared going against the Legion of Boom, Seattle's linebacker, Seattle's defensive lineman. They just were faster. They hit harder. And that's exactly what it felt like was happening at Heinz Field this past Sunday. Seattle's linebackers were able to consistently make big physical tackles as some of, uh, of Pittsburgh's smaller, quicker receivers. Uh, you know, And so because of that, I think that it forced Pittsburgh to have to start looking deeper over the top. That played into the hands of Mason Rudolph. That's what he did so very well at Oklahoma State. But at the same time, I think that it took away some of those underneath the passing game uh, that the Pittsburgh Steelers have done so, so successfully. Certainly the New Orleans Saints have as well as the Rams and Cardinals. So I do believe that this is a trend that we are going to continue to see in Seattle at least until somebody is successful enough and absolutely exploiting uh, the lack of defensive backs on the field for the Seahawks. I like what Mike Salk of ESPN 710 asked Pete Carroll on Monday morning about this. He, he said, look, I don't know if this is a good comparison, but he said, does Kendrick kind of play the the Cam Chancellor role even though he's a different position? And I actually can see the point that he was making there. Carroll actually yeah. agreed to them as well. Because he's so athletic, he's a big-bodied guy, you can blitz him off the edge. He's not a safety, but he does a lot of the same things, and he's physical in coverage, a great open-field tackler, has the athleticism to be able to play with those receivers, running backs, tight ends in coverage, and that's why they're more willing now to have this three linebacker set out there and stick with it because they've got the horses to do it. Most NFL teams don't have the athleticism, instincts, and overall football skills from all three of their linebackers to be able to do that. Seattle's one of the rare teams. They can do that, and that's got Pete Carroll fired up for good reason. Mack Weldon is better than whatever you're wearing right now. For 20% off your first order, visit MacWeldon.com and enter promo code LOCKED ON. Coming up after our quick break here, Rob and I, it's officially Throwback Tuesday. We're going to be looking at three former Seahawks that also starred for the New Orleans Saints, gearing up for this week's Week 3 battle at CenturyLink Field. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. If you found $100 on the street, would you pick it up or keep walking? Of course you take the money. So why do you keep picking winners and not betting on them? That's why I go to my bookie. It's fast, it's easy, and they pay when you win. Let's face it, where you're betting is just as important as who you're betting on. I wouldn't be telling you guys to bet with them if they weren't the best. Do the smart thing. If you're going to bet this football season, bet with my bookie. Did you know you could bet on games after kickoff? If by the second half it looks like your bet is going to lose, you can always just take the other side. 
If you're the kind of guy that likes to bet a little and win a lot, try a parlay. If all your picks come through, you'll multiply your winnings, and no matter what you bet or how you bet, the NFL season is the best time of year. Join now and MyBookie will double your first deposit. Use promo code LOCKEDON to activate the offer. That's promo code LOCKEDON. Visit MyBookie.ag today. You play, you win, you get paid. Welcome back, 12s. This is the Locked On Seahawks podcast. I'm Corbin Smith alongside Rob Rang. Yesterday, we had a chance to dissect Russell Wilson's outstanding performance, as well as Will Disley. Those are a couple of players we really highlighted. Coming up later on today's show, Rob and I are going to switch gears and look at how the rest of the teammates on Seattle's offense performed at Heinz Field. But before we talk offense, however... It's time for one of our favorite segments of the week. Happy Throwback Tuesday to each and every one of you. Normally, we cover one player in this segment, but Rob, we're switching it up a little bit this week because there are a number of recent stars for the Seahawks that also played really well in New Orleans. So we've got three former Seahawks and Saints to discuss today, starting with the best center to ever line up for the Seattle Seahawks. Yeah, I mean that's that's a heck of a that's a heck of a statement, but I think that's exactly what Max Hunger was. I mean, I am a big big fan of Justin Britt. Um, we talked before about Blair Bush and some of the other uh, centers. Robbie Tobek was a great center in Seattle's first Super Bowl run, but but Max Hunger, I just remember scouting him at Oregon. Thought that he was a borderline first to second round player. Of course, Seattle wound up taking him in the second round. Came in and was was kind of the one of the immediate kind of difference makers, and that that's so rare along the offensive line. And I don't mean the guy that's going to necessarily pave the way to, you know, for the thousand yard seasons. We can talk about the statistics of other players, just the the leadership, the consistency, a guy that did have some injury problems early in his career, but bounced back from that. And that's the type of resiliency. I think that that characterized Max Unger's career, obviously not only in Seattle, but then when he went on to the New Orleans Saints, just a terrific football player and, and truly one of the ambassadors of, of the game, frankly, on, on from the West Coast, just because of the fact that he was as successful as he was for his long as he was almost regardless of the type of scheme that he was asked to play for yeah this is a versatile player that could play in a number of different uh, offensive schemes incredible leadership qualities started in both Super Bowls for the Seahawks and this is what makes him stand out to me you mentioned Blair Bush obviously a really good player Robbie Tobeck was outstanding kind of got overlooked on that offensive line playing next to Steve Hutchinson and Walter Jones, uh, two guys that are going to be Hall of Famers together. It's just a matter of time till Hutch gets in. But uh, Max Unger is the only center they've ever had that was a first-team All-Pro, and rightfully so. He was the best center in football in 2012, and he made a couple Pro Bowls with the Seahawks. I think he have a couple other years. If he doesn't get banged up, he probably makes the Pro Bowl then too. He, for a three- or four-year stretch, was one of the two or three best centers overall in the National Football League. And he was really a linchpin, interesting word usage here, for lead blocking <laughs> for Marshawn Lynch, who had a couple thousand yard seasons running behind uh, Max Unger in that offensive line. Certainly a key part of that. And I think the biggest thing, I mentioned it earlier, the leadership qualities, how he affected the rest of that line. The center position is extremely vital for communication up front. And when they traded him to the Saints as part of the Jimmy Graham trade, this was a a position they struggled to fill for a couple years before they finally transitioned Justin Britt from guard to center. And and he's found a home there, but it took them a long time to be able to find somebody that could fill that void. And it affected the rest of the offensive line as a result. Oh, no question about it. It absolutely did. I mean, that was... 
you know, when, when Seattle did make that trade, I remember being so excited about the possibility of having that big target. Um, the Seahawks have been looking for for a long time with Jimmy Graham. We all know what a terrific downfield threat that he can be and that he was throughout most of his time in New Orleans and at times in Seattle as well. The one of the things I was immediately concerned with was the fact that Seattle was going from a guy who I just trusted to be physical enough. Max Unger wasn't a, a road grader. He is not those those big burly center. He's a more of a guy who's who uses position, uses his uh you know his technique, very athletic center, but not a not a physically dominant player. But at the same time, physicality was never a word that people were using with Jimmy Graham. And so I always am concerned anytime you are giving up physicality, then then what's going to happen? And so I'm not going to suggest that I thought that Jimmy Graham, that that trade was not going to turn out quite to Seattle's liking. But I was a little bit nervous just because of the fact that I was such a high fan of of Max Unger. Um, and so w- was not surprised at all to see Max Unger continue to play at a very high level in New Orleans. Um, and, and, and frankly, with the, the transition that Jimmy Graham was asked to make, knowing that he was a former basketball player at the University of Miami when he signed with New Orleans, that he was such a perfect fit in Sean Payton and Drew Brees' scheme. And then suddenly you ask him to come to the whole other side of the country. And while well, Seattle kept saying, we don't want him to be a blocker, we know exactly what he is. And then, of course, that's exactly what they asked him to do at times was to be a blocker. So there's a lot of fans out there right now listening to the Lockdown Seahawks podcast thinking, Jimmy Graham, how do you even mention him? You mentioned him because he was still a Pro Bowl kind of a player. He was still one of the most dominant uh, red zone threats out there. And even he, though he didn't have the success in Seattle that perhaps they hoped, uh, he still wound up being a, a, an integral part of one of the more uh, explosive and, and consistent offenses that Seahawks have had throughout their entire franchise history. I have come to the defense of Jimmy Graham so many times. And it's just amazing how Seahawks fans have turned. And I get it because he just, he wasn't a Seahawks style tight end. And that's what yes. made the trade at first. I mean, I, I'll admit when they first made the trade, I was very intrigued by it because I was thinking Russell Wilson hasn't had a weapon like this, but they never really knew how to utilize him properly. And so for that reason alone, he is one of the most scrutinized Seahawks in recent memory. And he still put up gaudy numbers. Now his last season, he had 10 touchdowns, but his other numbers were down. And and there were times that I will admit it looked like he was not putting maximum effort in out there. There were times he looked disinterested and you can kind of understand it because he was being asked, as you mentioned, he was being asked to block as an inline tight end. The Seahawks said, we know he's not going to be that. And yet they still tried to do that. And the fit was just never there. And yet he still put up really, really good numbers. And that's after coming off a severe injury his first year at Seattle too. We've seen Will Disley come back from a torn patellar tendon. And Jimmy Graham did the same thing, had a remarkable recovery, came back and had a really solid second season with the Seahawks, even though he was still not all the way back from that injury, still put up really good numbers. And we'll never know what it would have looked like if the Seahawks offense had had really tried to make adaptations. And and maybe that wouldn't have worked out anyway, because it just didn't fit everything else they tried to do and the other personnel they had. But it, it just wasn't a great fit. And unfortunately, fans have taken it out on Graham since he left for Green Bay last season and it's understandable to an extent, but at times I also feel like a lot of fans are way too harsh when you consider what he was still able to do when he was with this football team and and being put in a situation that wasn't necessarily maximizing his strengths. We're seeing all these guys that are demanding trades that are in these situations like, oh, I'm not playing the where I should be to maximize my strength. Jimmy Graham could have been arguing that the entire time he was in Seattle, and yet he didn't. 
No, exactly. I think that's an excellent point. I'm happy you mentioned it. I, mean, I think that you you explained it very well. That he just didn't fit in with Seattle's style, and there's a lot of, of Seahawks fans out there that kind of blamed him for that. And I don't know that that's entirely fair. It's, you know, I, I've had some really cool opportunities to be inside the VMAC and covering the, the draft for the Seahawks over, you know, and, and, and for CBS Sports and NFL Drafts after the last several years. One time in particular, I happened to meet Jimmy Graham, and they were just doing kind of one of those pickup little basketball games, and he saw there were media people out there he was i mean basketball that was his love before at the university of miami and and once he saw there were media people there he had zero interest in it and it just it was just kind of his personality that he was kind of a little bit aloof a little bit of a just a different kind of a guy and there's been a lot of guys who've been very successful in the nfl jimmy graham's one of them that that have had that type of personality but it was the first time where i got to see a little bit into his personality and thought that is not the same type of guy that's so many of the Seahawks' biggest stars are. While while Marshawn Lynch, to throw his name out there again, while he may have uh, shied away from the spotlight in some ways, obviously he liked the spotlight in other ways and was such a character. And Jimmy so Graham, well respected so, in that locker room too. Exactly. Jimmy Graham was so quiet in that way. So, But that said, we, we've talked about the two obvious ones. I know there's a third Saints and Seahawk out there that, that you're really excited about, and I think there's some fans out there that may be surprised to, to remember this name and remember, oh yeah, I remember that guy. He was a heck of a football player. I'll let you introduce him. Yeah, one of the most underrated players that has played for Seattle in the last 20 years. Obviously, I won't put him in the top five underrated players in franchise history, but I don't think I would put him too far behind because he played on some really bad teams and was still really productive, and that was linebacker David Hawthorne. And Pete Carroll, I know Pete Carroll liked him when he was here the first couple years of Carroll's reign. Hawthorne was his linebacker, and obviously Bobby Wagner was picked, and Bobby Wagner is a far superior player, but Hawthorne had three 100-plus tackle seasons after he took over for Lofa Tatupu as the middle linebacker for the Seahawks, and he had seven interceptions during those three years as well. So this is a guy that was solid in coverage. He was an undrafted player, so you know that fired up Pete Carroll that I've got this undrafted guy with a chip on his shoulder, wasn't supposed to be here, and he is starting the NFL and played really well, and he had a couple nice years with the Saints, and unfortunately, the Saints defense was really, really bad those couple years he was there, so he gets a associated with that, but I wouldn't blame that on him. Uh, They were an absolute mess. Uh, The Rob Ryan years, it was an absolute mess with them. They couldn't stop anybody, but David Hawthorne was a really good player for the Seattle Seahawks, and he also played well in the playoffs during that 2010, that unexpected run where they actually beat the Saints in that playoff game. He had a couple big plays in that game. I believe he recovered a fumble as well. Mm-hmm. He he was a terrific football player, and as you mentioned, he was an undrafted free agent. You know, I talked about before Max Unger, second round pick, and you know Jimmy Graham was, I believe, a fourth round pick when he came out of Miami. No one thought that he was going to explode and become the superstar that he became. David Hawthorne was productive at TCU, and you know, there were some questions about his size, questions about his fit. Uh, you know, six foot, two hundred and forty pounds, roughly, was not invited to the combine, so wasn't surprising that he wasn't uh, selected in the draft but at, at his pro day I believe it was March 6th uh, you know he had a terrific workout I mean he, he ran in the, in the low four sixes had a 37 inch vertical jump a 240 pound linebacker very that, underrated athlete 
Yeah, exactly. And so then you saw the instincts, you saw the physicality, just a good, legitimate starting NFL linebacker. I always liked him best in, in the mic position. I thought I liked his instincts. I thought he was physical at the point of attack. That, to me, is where he fit in best. You, you mentioned the fact that he went with the Saints. He had a cup of coffee with the Buffalo Bills. I think it was eight years that he was in the NFL. For an undrafted free agent to carve out that long of a, of a career, including several starting seasons with 100-plus tackles, as you mentioned, in Seattle, that is a heck of a testament just to the, the, the talent and the work ethic of this David Hawthorne. So I think that a classic Seahawk and Saint that, we, that deserved to be mentioned in this segment. Yeah, he's certainly a player that could have had a like. I love how you mentioned Cup of Tea. He could have had a longer run in Seattle, but obviously Bobby Wagner, they had interest in Michael Kendricks in that draft as well. He was a really solid starter, but he wasn't elite. So he's a guy that kind of fades into people's memory, but certainly was a really good player. And like I said, he had some big plays in the playoffs in that 2010 run. Certainly a player when he was in Seattle that a lot of fans loved and over the years kind of dissipated. So hopefully we've reminded you about how good of a player he was. He certainly was a a quality starter for both the Seahawks and the Saints. Coming up next in the third quarter, we're going to be looking at the offensive side of the football, some observations from Sunday's 28-26 win at Heinz Field. Which players away from Russell Wilson performed well? We're also going to look at the offensive line because it's the Seahawks. Of course, we've got to talk offensive line. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. There's nothing I enjoy more in this world than attending a sporting event or a concert. When I'm looking for my next live event, I roll with Vivid Seats, an online event ticket marketplace dedicated to providing fans of live entertainment with experiences that last a lifetime. Vivid Seats allows you to see your favorite live entertainment in person, earning credit back on all purchases made through the Vivid Seats app via the Vivid Seats Reward Loyalty Program. With reward statuses ranging from MVP to Hall of Famer, customers can earn from 10% up to 16% credit on all their purchases through the app. Struggling to find your seat? You can also use the Vivid Seats app to find your way. All Vivid Seats confirmed orders are backed by 100% guarantee. Make a memory that lasts a lifetime and let the Vivid Seats app help you to get to your favorite live event. Enter promo code KICKOFF at checkout now to receive a discount up to $100. Thanks to Vivid Seats for sponsoring our podcast. Welcome back to the Locked On Seahawks podcast. I'm your host Corbin Smith alongside Rob Rang. It's time to talk about some offense. And after the Seahawks endured a rough start in Pittsburgh, Rob, there was plenty of it. There, there certainly was. I mean, there there was, you know, the fact that the Seahawks exploded that the way they did, you know, I mean, you, you get uh, in, in, for both teams getting shut out in the first quarter um, and then Seattle scored nothing but touchdowns the rest of the way. And so that's obviously what you're looking for, um, for Russell Wilson to come in there and, and throw for 300 yards and three touchdowns, have one of the best games of, uh, frankly, I thought of, of his entire career, just considering that, well, I, I guess in a way you could say that the, the stakes aren't high. You're in week two, but I think that it feels so much bigger that Seattle is now 2-0 and rather than 1-1 and uh, at this point. And, you know, that remains to be seen how, how big this game is. Obviously, the Pittsburgh Steelers are not the same team, but... Still, for, for Russell Wilson to have the game that he did, um, we, we talked yesterday a lot about Rashad Penny, Will Disley. I thought he had a terrific performance for, for Seattle, his best game, in my opinion, of his NFL career. I certainly wasn't expecting that. And the, the other player that kind of, you know, we didn't even mention yesterday that was absolutely terrific was Tyler Lockett. Career high 10 receptions a week after only caught the one pass against the Cincinnati Bengals. To me, this was a very, uh, a, a very well run, very, very well called 
controlled game, I should say. And I thought that Seattle did a great job of distributing the ball to its running backs, to its pass catchers. I just thought it was an overall a very impressive performance, considering it is week two. I love that you mentioned Lockett here because he did have 10 receptions and a lot of them were those the short, quick variety, but several of them moved the chains. And I love it that you mentioned him just because there's a play, I posted it on social media today with DK Metcalf running a vertical. DK Metcalf had a great game. He caught his first touchdown in the NFL, had another play where he caught a pass and then trucked over a defender. Actually, Sean Davis got hurt trying to tackle him, and now he's on injured reserve. So that's what you get when you try to tackle a man like DK Metcalf. But going back to this specific play, Tyler Lockett catches a short little quick pass. He makes the defender miss, and he's heading towards the sideline. And DK Metcalf knows that the football has been out and somebody and that somebody's caught it. So he turns and I believe it was Joe Hayden who was defending him and he put Joe Hayden on skates. He was blocking him like 15 yards downfield and if Tyler Lockett he almost stayed in bounds. If Tyler Lockett stays in bounds doesn't get pushed out I think he's making a house call because there is no, there's no doubt in my mind that DK Metcalf was not letting Joe Hayden make that play. He was going to drive him off the field if he had to. And it's crazy with all the other plays he made in this game. That is the one on film. That was one of the most uh, eye-pleasing plays in this game. Just seeing that this huge guy out at receiver, it's, it's laughable. It's hilarious watching him out there next to these good-sized corners and he just makes them look like dwarves and just driving them off the field. So Lockett had a great game, but Metcalf, another outstanding performance and plenty of mistakes made by the rookie, but he continues to show why there was so much hype this offseason. Oh, exactly. I mean, as you said, I mean, there was still some, uh, you know, still some things that DK Metcalf can improve. As you mentioned, he caught his first career touchdown, but at the same time, we all saw him bobble it. And so I think there was some some concern in that regard. Um, but at the same time, just the, the, the career arc that this kid could have is, is just extraordinary. Better than any receiver, uh, more gifted in terms of size, speed, all those things that any receiver Seattle's ever had. I mean, there's a reason why I've been kind of saying, I think this kid could be the next coming of Julio Jones and I realize how much hyperbole that is you know my goodness talking about an all pro and possibly a future hall of fame kind of guy who's just led the league and you know receiving yards the last couple of years in a row uh, but at the same time, I mean, that's the type of talent we're talking about with DK Metcalf. And, and as you say, kind of eye-pleasing from a blocking perspective and all that, it certainly wasn't eye-pleasing for the Pittsburgh Steelers. I think, as you mentioned, Sean Davis went down. Now he's on the IR. Um, Joe Hayden was getting physically mauled. I think that was absolutely some of the reason why Kevin Colbert, general manager of the Steelers, was so aggressive in making that move for Minka Fitzpatrick. So, you know, I, I think that that we are absolutely correct to be to be very much touting what DK Metcalf did, what Tyler Lockett did. We talked before about Russell Wilson. And then, you know, Malik Turner. I mean, I don't think he had a strong I'm glad you mentioned it. We have got to talk about Malik Turner because what a game arriving on the scene in Pittsburgh. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and he, he's always been a, a quality special teams guy. You knew he could do that, but he wound up making some very critical receptions for the Seahawks. And just to me, again, I think this is kind of that rope-a-dope thing we talked about before. I believe, It's not that I necessarily believe that Malik Turner is suddenly going to be Seattle's number three or even number four receiver, but he just gives you one more guy that defensive coordinators are going to have to kind of be paying attention to. It's not just you know some of the other receivers that we've talked a lot more about, or Jerron Brown or John or Sewer or whoever. Malik Turner 
making his name out there. So to me, that's what you that's what good offenses do. They they put certain players in position to make a big play. When they do make that big play, it just sticks in the cross, sticks in the mind of those defensive coordinators, and then you attack the next game with a different receiver. So I'm just curious to see who's going to be make a big play for the Seahawks against the New Orleans Saints this week. I think it's going to be somebody else that we haven't talked about yet. At least if Brian Schottenheimer gets his uh, get, gets his way. Yeah, David Moore could be back this week too, and that just throws another guy in there that we know can make plays, uh, certainly, and now he can run routes out of the slot. But going back to Turner real quick, uh, what I was most impressed about, this is a kid that was starting on the practice squad for the Seahawks at the beginning of last year. He had a really good preseason as a rookie, but didn't make the team out of training camp. And you can just tell he's that kind of player, though, that Pete Carroll gets really fired up about because he takes special teams very seriously. He's a good special teams player, and he's outstanding in terms of effort at practice. Carroll was raving about him yesterday for that, the work ethic that he brings to the table. And what I was really impressed with, this is a football team that ranked 31st in the NFL last year in yards after the catch. He had two different catches on uh, Sunday where he was able to pick up big chunks of yardage after the catch. One of them he caught like 10 yards downfield, and he ended up picking up 30 yards. He raced to the right sideline and bowled in for 30 yards. He had another one that he managed to uh, drag a tackler a few yards before going down and ended up picking up a first down. So you saw some ability to not just make the catches, but make a play after the catch, get up some extra yardage with this burst and, and maybe some physicality after the catch as well. You know, exactly. And it's, it is that it is the speed. It, it is the physicality. It's the resiliency. And, and that's, that's the resiliency that is created when you, um, when you do get cut your first year, you have to work your way up to the practice squad. You are going to be damn sure to take advantage of any opportunity you get with that ball. You're going to do, you're going to be fighting, scratching, clawing to get every single extra yard you possibly could. And it's that kind of hunger, that kind of resiliency. That I think, I think you're absolutely right. I think that, that Malik Turner is one of Pete Carroll's kind of favorite kind of guys because of that. And I, frankly, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention two other guys who I thought had solid performances. Uh, CJ Prosize, I think he just adds another element to Seattle's offense. So I want to mention him. A couple of receptions, a couple of runs. Just gives you a different look in the backfield. And then I just love the fact that DJ Fluker came back from his injury. What toughness. What you know, He is one of the guys that is up front that you know, one of the leaders, one of the, the real, uh, you know, again, just the tough guys that, that make Seattle's offense go. To come off, to go, to go off the field with the injury to come back just kind of shows that hey I'm in I'm committed to this um, and I think that that was a, a big point um, when Seattle was able to run the ball down Pittsburgh's throat to kind of put this game away I'm not so sure that they would have made that same call if DJ Fluker was on the field I'm going to be honest I, the first half was probably the worst half of football I've seen from DJ Fluker in the Seahawks uniform he yep. was getting uh, just getting overpowered and uh, in the pass protection aspect, the Steelers were owning him. He had a couple uh, stunts that he and Effetti both missed out on. I don't know if the communication was not there, but uh, he really played poorly, in my opinion, in the first half. And then when he came back from that injury, you're right. The, the last few drives there, he was a key component of getting that ground game going and picking up the yardage they needed to secure this football game. They ran the ball very effectively in the second half, and and not that Postick didn't do some things when he subbed in. Postick's done a really nice job filling in when he's had to, but 
getting the big fella back in there. He looked like a different player coming back from the injury, to be honest with you. He was better in pass pro. He was better in, in run blocking. You wouldn't have been able to tell if you didn't see the injury that he had gone down and he missed some time in this football game. He just he looked like he was a better player when he was playing hurt at the end of the game. So I'm glad he mentioned that because I, I was kind of disappointed with how he played in that first half in, in all phases. He, he missed some run blocks. The pass pro was shaky, but this is a, a characteristic of a player. There's a reason he's so popular in that locker room. And him coming back from that injury, it, it speaks volumes to teammates that this guy really wants to win. He cares about us getting back in the game injured and performing how he did. Yeah, I think that, again, it's it's the resiliency we talked about. And then something we mentioned in yesterday's episode was just the, how much we were, how impressed we were with Brian Schottenheimer and Rashad Penny specifically and, and their abilities to adjust after halftime. That, that was some of the things that we saw when, when Seattle had the, their Super Bowl runs. So I, that's one of the most encouraging things to me was that we did see Fluker, we did see Penny, we did see the entire Seattle team, frankly, make adjustments in this game and that I think is a testament again to that resiliency again to their experience the fact that they're not going to panic and to do that on the road I, I think again is, is just a testament to the fact that we may have a special team this year in the Seattle yeah the Seahawks have a chance that we know the talents there there's still some areas of concern but they've got the talent there to be in the mix in the NFC especially with some of the quarterback injuries that have happened this the opportunity is here for this team to get home field advantage if they can somehow win their division this division three teams are two and oh it's going to be a dogfight, and the Cardinals are not going to be a pushover it's clearly been evident already these first two weeks they're going to be able to put some points on the board Kyler Murray has been pretty exciting so that's going to be an absolute dog fight winning that division but if Seattle can get out of there win that division and perform well and they're out of division out of conference games can get to that 11-12 win threshold they can be one of the top seeds in the NFC and we know that that is not what the rest of the league wants to see because that means you have to play through CenturyLink field but uh, certainly seeing the way they responded that second half especially the offensive line yes the, the passes were coming out so quick so that really helped that offensive line but they just looked much more in sync and that all goes back to those adjustments that were made not just by Schottenheimer Mike Solari I'm sure made some adjustments at halftime with his guys like settle down we, we can get the job done here and they really kept Russell Wilson clean most of that second half they're getting sacked four times in the first half totally different story it really was the last three quarters even before halftime the pass protection was better in the second quarter those last three quarters no sacks against Wilson and a much better job of, of keeping him upright and allowing him to be able to scan the field even though he was unloading the football quickly you could see those adjustments being made and that's why they were able to hold on in this football game for a key two-point win at Heinz Field. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Rob at Rob Rang. If you'd like to be a featured sponsor on the Locked On Seahawks podcast, you can contact me LockedSeahawks at gmail.com. Make sure to subscribe to our show if you haven't already. iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever your preferred podcast platform is, you can visit us at LockedOnSeahawks.com. Coming up tomorrow, it's Crossover Wednesday. I'll be teaming up with Ross Jackson of Locked on Saints to preview Sunday's upcoming Week 3 matchup at CenturyLink Field. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday. Go Hawks!